even when you think that you're communicating neutrality, you're actually communicating all of these other things. everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Uh, my name is Moritz Stefana, I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. And I am Enrico Bertini, a professor at NYU in New York City, and I do research in data visualization. Exactly, and together here on this podcast we talk about data visualization, data analysis, and generally which role data plays in our lives. Yeah, and usually we do that together with a guest that we invite on the show. But before announcing the special guest for today, we have um, an important update. We are finally switching to crowdfunding. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it took us a while. We started asking for your pledges uh, beginning of the year already, I think, right? Or when yep. did we start? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And now we've finally reached over $400 per episode in contributions from you all. That's fantastic. We have 83 patrons backing the show. Yes. <laughs> and it's enough to, to finance the show now. So we will start to switch over. Um, we should say a big thanks to our sponsors so far. I mean, thinking back, you know, especially Click has supported us many years, Tableau. And I think if they hadn't like supported us this way, I'm not sure if the podcast had actually been around still because it, only the sponsorship really enabled us to get support from Destry, who helps us with the production of the show, from Florian, who does the, all the audio uh, editing, which is also quite a big part of the <laughs> invisible work going into this podcast. And, and honestly, I'm not sure if we would have been able to keep going this long. So thanks, <laughs> thanks so much for our sponsors so far. Yeah, yeah. Really, thanks so much. And uh, we are really curious to see what is going to happen. So, so yeah, and how thanks. that maybe changes the <laughs> dynamic or maybe it doesn't change anything at all. It's like, we, we don't know either. We, yeah, we'll see. yeah. And, yeah. And of course, we are thinking about some special perks for our patrons. We don't want to disclose anything, but yeah. you'll see there will be some, some things happening. We, we have a few ideas <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And also we're trying, we will probably trying to set up uh, something for people who want to do just one-time donations. So stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, I think that's all to say for now, right? Yeah, maybe we can briefly explain how it works. So you can oh, sign yeah, up on, on yeah. patreon.com slash data stories. So we have a page there. Patreon is a service that manages all this subscription and you know crowdfunding of projects like this. And you can say you uh, you like data stories so much, you pay like $2 per episode, maybe $3, maybe $5. And um, then we basically, once we publish an episode, we can uh, press a button and collect that money from, from all the contributors. And you can join or leave at any time. It's a totally voluntary thing. And um, do keep the contributions coming. I, I mean, we should mention our original goal was a bit higher. <laughs> so we will still need your uh, ongoing support. Uh, but we are super grateful for anybody who has pledged already. And if you have not, maybe think about it. Could be good. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just what, like price for a, for a coffee or cappuccino? Yeah. Every two exactly. weeks? It's so. such a good podcast, honestly. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> 
<laughs> we are brewing we'll, stuff we'll see for how this you goes. here. We're also figuring out ourselves. We haven't done this before. So also if you have any like questions about the process or any complaints or whatnot, just let us know. Well, we're in this together now, especially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways, that's great. So that's very exciting. I think it's a new chapter. Um, and yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Moving on. Enough about us. Um, <laughs> today we have a special guest again, as usual. And uh, her name is Catherine Dignazio. Great to have you on. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Catherine. Hi. Great to be here. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome on the show. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I, we wanted to have you on for a long time and it's, uh, we're happy <laughs> it finally worked out. And uh, you're an assistant professor for data visualization and civic media. Great combination uh, at Amazon College. That's right. Yep. And can you tell us a bit uh, about what you're interested in and maybe what your background is, how you ended up doing what you do now and so on? Sure. Well, how how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> <laughs> as much as you, as you wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, well, so currently, as you said, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor of data visualization and civic media. Um, and those are two kind of weird things to be a professor of because they're both sort of new. And so these are kind of these titles where you say that to your family and they're like, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about for bo on both counts. Mm. Um, but I guess the way that I ended up here makes the position make sense. So um, I... In, undergrad. Well, no, I should. I'm, okay. So I'm going to start really far back, but I promise this will be short. Um, so I grew up around um, computers and computer programming and robots because my dad was a science fiction writer and also worked in educational technology. And he was a really big early proponent of uh, using computers in the classroom with kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, very cool. And so like I was, I was super nerdy, but not knowing that I was a nerd because it was just like very normal for me. I went to computer camp when I was in elementary school. And this is back before, this is back when computer camp was really weird. Like nobody went to computer camp. <laughs> um, uh, but I grew up programming computers, basically. Um, and so then when I went to college, I, I studied liberal arts. I did not study anything, like I didn't study computer science or anything like that. Because I was like, oh, I know how to do that stuff. Which, of course, I didn't. But like I thought I did. <laughs> um, and, but then when I was graduating from so I, my major was international relations, uh, which was basically just the major I took so I could take the most variety of classes from all the different disciplines. Um, but whereas my friends in undergrad all went on to be like investment bankers and lawyers and things like this, um, this was the height. When I graduated, it was the height of the dot-com, the first dot-com boom. And so this was this kind of crazy job market where like if you knew the least bit of computer skills you could get hired as like any kind of programmer they're like whatever just like come like fill our like staff our things or whatever so I got hired as a programmer like straight out of undergrad um and proceeded to work for for I don't know five or six years in different kinds of like a startup environment. I worked at a at a research as a technical project manager for a research project and oversaw developers and things like this. Um, and then I kind of this is where I went ended up going into the arts because I was like, well, what what else can you do though? With you know, I don't want to just build like enterprise project management software for for Raytheon. <laughs> you know, like there's <laughs> got to be other options out there. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is where I ended up going to um, art and design school. So I went and got an MFA, and try, was trying through that to combine my um, 
interests in sort of art and technology and creative expression um, and then uh, with programming and things. And then, uh, like, I just, I guess I'll sort of fast forward. And then I spent basically like 10 years um, trying to do all those things at the same time. So I was like a freelance software programmer, um, a independent artist, and an adjunct professor. And I taught at places like RISD and the museum school here in Boston. Um, and then I had a kids and then I was like, oh my God, I have three careers. I have to not have three careers. <laughs> this is totally not working. Like three freelance careers and like children just, just is like, that's a, that's a disaster. Um, and so that's where I ended up going back to school for civic media, uh, mm-hmm. at the MIT media mm-hmm. lab. Um, and so that seemed to be this place where you could combine all of these things. So for me, it's like the intersection of, um, of technology, art and design, and then also like social justice or sort of uh, a kind of uh, civic engagement and investment in like how do we um, use technology and creative expression um, for the public good and think about all the complexities of what, 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 who's public good and what public good and what are we talking about when we say those things. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how I ended up here. And so now um, I'm teaching data visualization. I, when they were hiring for this position, I looked back at a lot of my, my projects and I said, oh, actually, that's data visualization. That's data. I was like, oh, yeah, I do do data visualization. This makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, it, it's great. It's one of these biographies that totally makes sense, like looking back, but forward looking. Only it's looking mess, back. Right? <laughs> It's a total disaster. And like if you asked me 15 years ago what I was going to be doing, I would have said probably something t- completely different. Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's great. No, and I think it's great that, I mean, that you're now, you're an academic and you're teaching and, and so on. You're writing papers and books, but you also do have some some life and some practical experience and can bring that uh, to the table there. And I think that's that's great. And so... On your website, it says your main topics are data literacy, feminist tech, and civic art. And yeah, it sounds so broad, but in a way, I think for you, it all comes together in this theme of feminist data visualization. I think that's also the the main topic uh, we wanted to discuss with you because it's. I first uh, came across your blog post, What Would Feminist Data Visualization Look Like? I think it was published two, three years ago. I think mm-hmm. it sort of made the rounds. It was like a very short article, but sort of a provocative idea and also when I read the title I was a bit like irritated in a sense like well what what does feminism please have to do with data visualization right and I think this yeah. is the, the response a yeah. lot of people who maybe are not so well versed in feminism and or data visualization <laughs> you <laughs> totally. know I think and I think many people have this first reaction like well do do we need to bring everything in this you know or see it under the feminist uh like a uh, perspective Lens. but then when you read the article it it totally makes sense and and i think we should talk a bit about like what um what you write there and how your position has further uh developed your uh you published a publication around the topic and i know you're working on a book as well so that's right you invested some thought into these topics so yeah yeah maybe coming back to the question like what what do you think what would a feminist perspective on data visualization look like like what's what's your your perspective there sure um yeah so i mean it might be helpful just as kind of a primer for folks to think about because i've gotten this question a lot when i've done talks and particularly in, for different audiences depending on 
whatever you think of feminism and whatever you think that means. And maybe just like some clarity around what is feminism. Um, and so um, there's like kind of two things. So so one is that the um, feminism is the sort of just purely a belief. So feminism is the belief in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. So that's a dictionary definition. Um, and that's also Beyonce's definition of feminism. <laughs> <laughs> like she literally so, has fact, a statement yeah. that where she has said that. So that makes it real. <laughs> um, but then, so there's, there's, there's like the belief in equality, um, which I think like most people um, how that, how could that, he not be for that? I mean, I right, mean any, exactly. like, if you think it through, like, hello. <laughs> it's, like, it's fairly uncontroversial, I'd yeah. say, uh, in some most circles. Yeah. Um, but then and then there's also feminist thinking and scholarship. And so that's and so we're trying to bring that work. So there's this very long history of um, feminist intellectual thought and feminist scholarship in a wide variety of fields. Um, and what that looks at is, you know, taking this belief as like a starting point. How do we like look at the current world and see places where it falls short and also see ways where we can um basically make it better. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of feminist thinking is not only about gender, and I, I just want to say this real explicitly because this, this also becomes a um, confusion point sometimes for people, like when I start showing examples of things that are not just like woman-specific. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, yeah. so, so like it's not only about gender. Like it does take gender as a starting point, I would say, but it takes gender as a starting point for looking um, across um, various aspects of the world and looking at power differentials, so power imbalances, basically like who has power and who doesn't have power. Um, and often that those are, it's like social power. So we could be talking about gender, but we could also be talking about race or we could be talking about ability or sexuality or uh, gender identity or, um, you know, a whole um, host of, of, of sort of different things. But it's, it's meaning more like um, in tune to these considerations of power and how various identity factors um, sort of flow into that and out of mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's so that's, I just want to like clarify that um, because it's been interesting to give these talks in, in different situations and have people be like, well, like what? I don't get it. Like what is feminism and what is this? So, um, so that's like, a, that's the basic starting point. No, but that's a super um, crucial point. And this is one I realized when I read your, your writings, like, yeah, it's about much more and we can take a lot of inspiration from, What, what these feminists who have, well, working on, sure, gender and, and uh, equality issues, but it transfers also. And, and I think this is the interesting point, really. Yeah. Exactly. And this is why also it, it applies to things broader than just, say, if you're looking at something that where you're looking at uh, gender data or mm -hmm. something like that. Like, exactly. So it applies more like across the board. Yeah. So when we're talking about like data visualization and feminist thought, um, then that's where like, uh, you know, the, that original blog post was basically trying to really just being provocative, like trying not not deliberately like trying to provoke people, but like more like just saying, putting it out on the table and saying, well, like, what would this look like? Um, and, you know, I, for me, there's like two sort of main things. Or so it's, it's really sort of looking at like, well, like, where is power located in data visualization? Um, and one of the things that we've realized actually in the process of writing this book is that there's power not just in the 
the, you know, the data visualization is like a product of a particular process. Mm -hmm. But one of the things the book has started to do is take on all the different aspects of the process as well. From the, from the beginning point where you're like framing the research question that you're mm -hmm. going to somehow use data to answer or interrogate or something like that. But specifically in visualization, like I, I think there's like a couple main things to kind of think about. Um, so a lot of times visualizations have a... Um, there, uh, what Donna Haraway, the uh, feminist theorist, very well known, uh, wrote writing through from the 1980s onward, what Donna Haraway would call a view from nowhere. Um, and so that's and in terms of just very specifically speaking about like the the, the kind of um, default view of visualizations is that they are a view from a disembodied perspective, and this is part of their power. So I want to make that really clear. It's like one of the reasons we love data visualizations. Um, is because they are like the view from above. It's kind of like when you're flying in the plane and you see the landscape below mm. and you're like, mm. I can see it all, all right the now. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's why they're dazzling. In the same way maps, maps are like this as well, right? Like mm. where it's like, oh, I see like the whole thing right now. Yeah. Um, and so there's something very uh, seductive about that. And I think we need to acknowledge the seductiveness of it. And like, and that also can be something that you work with and intentionally like sort of um, manipulate as material. Um, but then also thinking about how it has, um, it, it sort of uh, removed the perspective from a body and really kind of positioned it as like a God's eye view of, mm -hmm. of the world. Um, and so that's where like a, a, a strong claim of feminist thought would be around um, situated knowledge, this idea that knowledge is situated. Um, I think uh, it's Johanna Drucker says, like, knowledge is partial, knowledge is situated, and knowledge is historical. And so what that means is, like, knowledge comes from human bodies. Um, it's it's partial in the sense that, like, no one of us ever truly has that, you know, God's eye view, even though we love to to imagine that we could through our dashboards and all of our things. Mm -hmm. um, and so in some sense, and this is this is sort of like where Mushan Zaraviv's work goes as well, in some sense, like data visualizations sort of lie a little bit, like the, this like premise that we are seeing the whole picture, like they what they seem to communicate is um, clarity, insight, you're seeing the whole picture, when in fact, there's a little bit of a uh, sleight of hand going on, um, because of course, that the truth that they present is partial. Hmm. And they suggest like an objective mechanism that is detached from human judgment, really. It's like, Sciency stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, so, yeah. exactly, yeah. and it, it like goes along with that thing of like, oh, the data speak for themselves, <laughs> you know, mm, exactly, of like, yeah. oh, yeah. look, this <laughs> is objective, this is neutral, um, and so a, a lot of like, I, I would say, what feminist data visualization hmm. would try to do would be to um, untangle that and show the ways that it's not neutral, mm -hmm. um, but then also think about like what what strategies might we use in the visualization itself to also communicate that as well. Um, and so I think there's there's various strategies one could use and design strategies that, that you can make use of. And we, and we try to start to try to outline some of those. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, so there's, there's, so there's that. So there's like a kind of um, what I would call the the kind of perspective from the epistemolo epistemology of data visualization, you know? There's like a right, kind right. of epistemological critique there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but then on the other side of it, um, you know, 
uh, feminist thought also pays close attention to like how things get made and to uh, labor. Um, so there's like a whole history of like um, feminist scholarship looking at um, how for many years, you know, work done in the home, like care work and reproductive labor, it's all very sort of undervalued. It's invisible. It doesn't rise to the surface. It's not remunerated. Um, and so in this sense, too, we felt like obligated to look kind of at the whole process of the data visualization and then also to look at like literally just like who are the people producing the data visualizations as well. And so this is then like the perspective you get to of like who's included, um, who's making data visualizations, who's framing the research questions, who's designing the things. Um, and so I think there's also these kind of issues of diversity and inclusion and equity in just the like nuts and bolts of actually making the things mm -hmm. as well. And so that's a whole place where there's like there's like whole populations missing from from um, from that world. So, so yeah, I don't know if that really answers the question. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those, are, those are like some starting points, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that's it's two really interesting and, and quite profound points, I think. And I think what's so interesting is you can end up at these conclusions through different paths as well. Like, for instance, like uh, just last week we talked about Georgia Lupi's uh, Uh, capstone mm -hmm. at IEEE Viz and she like the last year also coined that term or the notion of data humanism and mm -hmm. I think that goes in a very similar direction in the sense that she talks about like the yeah like not making that mistake of thinking just because something is quantified it's like objective or um, has no no real haptics to it anymore and she tries to bring back also this like notion of an explicit author and um care and so on so um i think that's Absolutely. it's sort of interesting like that you can end up at or it seems to be in the air right now and you can sort of characterize the same phenomenon from different many many different angles but i i, I hadn't heard this feminist framing before and i think that's super interesting Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the stuff around data humanism is, I think it's very, it's sort of in parallel. And I've also been following that. And I think it's great because I think, again, pushing back on some of the, I, I think there's some like received wisdom in these various fields that we call data visualization. So, um, you know, like one of the things being, you know, like, there, so we have the, the, the grandfather of, uh, Edward Tufte, um, who's saying things like uh, data ink ratio and, you know, makes the case for very, very minimalist type of charts and, um, you know, charts that... Uh, Would you say he has like a pa patriarchic approach? Would you say he's like, a, he's a bit of patriarchal? Totally. Right? Yeah. I, I would say patriarchal, modernist, um, uh -huh. positivist. Yeah. yeah. Um, And which is not to like to detract from the beautiful books and like I think the really amazing history that he has sort of written uh, of data visualization. I mean, kind of made this thing happen in like the 80s, you know, where, right, where right, it wasn't right. happening. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's a very sort of like um, modernist viewpoint. It's also like this viewpoint of um, missing the fact that data visualizations are communication objects. And so in the same way that like a photograph isn't neutral and we don't now understand that, like especially with the age of Photoshop and where everybody's taking so many pictures and everybody has access to doing filters on Instagram and things like this. I think there's widespread literacy about how photos are not neutral. They're not these one-to-one -one representations of the world. That's just, it's just not how they function. There's, there's, there's framing, there's a kind of communicative act that goes into the, the shooting of the photo, the framing of the photo, the processing of the photo, the deploying of the photo out into the world. Um, 
that's something that I think we're just starting to talk about in data visualization, how it's a it is a rhetorical act, no matter how um, how neutral or scientific you you might think that it is. It is a communicative act. And so, like, even when you think it's like the most neutral, I mean, I think. My co-author of the book, Lauren Klein, and I would claim that it's actually the least objective because what it's communicating is neutrality. And that that has so much power, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so you cannot avoid communicating. Um, and so, like, even when you think that you're communicating neutrality, um, you're you're actually communicating all of these other things. So. Um, so, yeah. So I think so. Um, so, yeah, I would say, like, we're we're moving out of a modernist phase of data visualization and, and it's but it's getting very interesting. And I I think that's that's what's kind of exciting. And then even some of the um, research from the more scientific side, from the information visualization community specifically, is upholding some of these things as well. So I'm thinking of like the research of like Michelle Borkin and folks like this who are showing that, well, actually, when visualizations are novel, um, people remember them more, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like, and actually when... And they are cultural artifacts. I think that's something yeah. that's yeah, just dawn, is just dawning on people right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like they're all, they're like all these other forms of communication, which means they're both subject to the biases of those things, um, but then they also have many other expressive possibilities that might be opened up once we consider them as objects of communication mm-hmm. and culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think that's very interesting because listening to you and, and reading to uh, reading about your work is, for me, it's been a little bit like rediscovering some of the steps that I've been going through myself and uh, kind of like suffering through some of these steps. Because, of course, I come... <laughs> I come from the academic world, right? And um, I've been reading lots of scientific stuff. And I like to think that there is one proper way of, of doing things and there is a bad way of doing things, right? And and also that one of the major goals of, of visualization is to communicate information as objectively as possible, right? So now I'm... Um, and, and that's what I believed for a very long time. Then I, had, I, I went through some experiences that challenged some of this view. And now I'm, and now I'm confused, right? So I, I'm not sure <laughs> anymore on what I'm really sold. Because yeah. on the one hand, I so I've been doing research myself that shows that, as you said, right? So visualization is, is just very strong persuasion uh, tool, mechanism. You can basically throw to some extent bullshit at people and they would just believe it because there is a chart there, right? Totally. So part of me is is completely sold, not even just sold. I think I've experienced myself that this problem exists, that's that's a really important issue, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the other hand, part of me is like, wait a minute, some things are better than others, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, some things yeah. are truer than mm. others, right? And mm-hmm. not um, everything's relative or not uh, everything no. is relative, no, right? Not everything. So, I like, I'm this, totally on board with that. I do not want to live in the post-truth society. Right? <laughs> so, it's not my jam. <laughs> you, it looks to me, you, you seem to have the right knowledge to explain to people like me 
what how do we draw the line there it's it's really <laughs> hard i've been trying myself and i'm struggling right so sure. i don't know do you have any ideas on how how to deal with this problem this kind of like maybe it's a false dichotomy i don't know no i totally get it and i i think it's also um it's an easy position to slip into is like oh okay well if everything is persuasive then like then you go into total relativism yeah. and like the, some of the feminist theory and some of the like deconstructionist theory from you know like uh, postmodernist uh, type of era goes there mm-hmm. and I, that is not I, I think that's actually super unhelpful um, and it, it leaves us in a position of never being able to do anything except yeah, maybe write to get like, anything theory. Anything you're just stuck, stuck, stuck yeah. forever like, you can just yeah. pour another wine no, no. and like yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean this is like, this is actually kind of the project this is kind of like why I think Lauren and I wanted to try to connect feminist theory to data visualization, something that is like a, a practice and also in particular to data visualization that aspires to do good in the world. So like the public data visualizations like in uh, data journalism or the arts or in the nonprofit sector or libraries. Um uh, is precisely like it's like people need to move forward, and so I think a lot of the the ending point of theory is just like oh you made these theories and you've deconstructed everything and you've left us with nothing in return, and that those are not usually helpful starting points for moving forward. Um, so I think like the um, everything is is relative um, is not the I mean it's also not like where the feminist theorists like that we're drawing on at least uh, like Donna Haraway and Sandra Harding um, and folks like this would say that this does not mean that there's no truth <laughs> you know um, and, so, and actually in Donna Haraway's essay where she coins this term um, the God trick where she's talking about that like view from nowhere in that same essay um, she's talking about something she calls feminist objectivity um, which is this idea that um, we we are limited and we are by just necessity limited. We are partial humans. Like I am, I will I will never be a man. I will never be a different race. I will never be, um, you know, born in Bangalore versus Boston. You know, sure. I just, I have mm. these things that are part of my history and my, my identity and uh, that I've experienced that I cannot... Um, change and they they shape how I view the world they shape the kinds of questions that I ask and it's always going to be that way um, but at the same time this doesn't preclude us from uh, like take you know being as objective as possible and mm-hmm. knowing that we have those kinds of biases but then also combining that with other situated perspectives and this is just why mm-hmm. there's also like a real emphasis in feminist theory on collaboration as well and collaboration mm-hmm. and Pluralities, And so that's one of the things like we we actually put in our paper, like I think that's what is it like? I think we said embracing pluralism is a design principle. Um, And so that would come out of this idea that, you know, though we are limited and partial in our knowledge by, you know, pairing with others and learning what they learn and having them point out to us some of our blind spots, like this is how we can move forward. And I would never say that, like, yeah, all knowledge is relative. I mean, I think Mm -hmm, all of these mm -hmm. fields um, are these set of, like, emerging practices and we argue over them and, like, ultimately, hopefully we get somewhere um, that are good and and, um, practical places or we have people who come in and point out our own blind spots. Mm. Um, no, but that's a great point. Like by disclosing your all and embracing your own biases, they're like, yeah, that's yeah, who that's, I am as yeah. a person. And this yeah. is, you know, 
this is where I'm arguing from, but then still present a strong argument and have an opinion and yes. being able to present evidence. But exactly, you know, you you are a person who has biases and and you disclose it to others as well, and and then it becomes fair and you can still make a strong statement, maybe. Right. Exactly. And that's actually why I think like feminist thought is is quite aligned with these trends in data visualization and even in science around reproducibility of uh -huh. research and knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so like this is a practice that's also happening in like data journalism where a lot of times when um, folks are doing a more complicated data analysis piece, they'll they'll write the story, they'll show the charts, but then they will also have the post or the story that's about how they did it. And they'll say like, here's, I actually do this with my students. I make them do this as well, where they disclose like, here's how I, here's where I downloaded the data. Here's how I transformed it. Here's what I did with it. Here's the claim that I made with it um, as a way of, because I do think transparency um, and sort of um, self-reflexivity, sort of disclosing oneself and disclosing one's own position can go a long way forward, again, towards with that idea of, like, furthering the conversation. So yeah. then, the you know, somebody can come along and be like, oh, you made a mistake. But that's okay, too. Like, yeah. also, we yeah. need to get rid of this. I, also, when I started, there was often much more, I think, still, and it's still around this idea that, All the projects are awesome, and everybody who does an awesome project <laughs> is a hero. And you yeah. know, and yeah. and you just want to hear the story of how the hero made this awesome project. You know, and totally. <laughs> if we give up this as the like the driving maxim and more talk about failure and imperfections, you know, then it can become much more much richer and much more truthful in the end than if we always strive towards that perfection. Totally, that isn't there in the first place, right? Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I think, again, that's kind of like the, um, this is sort of what something that the art and design world suffers from as well, where it's like you have this idea of artists are the genius or yeah. the designers is the genius, you know. Yeah. Um, and we kind of, <laughs> I think there is a little bit of that, like that floats in the air with data visualization. And I mean, I certainly have a little bit of like fangirl stuff when I see people, I'm like, oh, I love your thing, you know, <laughs> and I'm embarrassed <laughs> to talk to them. Um, but um But yeah, like even in the language, like we have a chapter in our book where we're talking about uh, the language we use to describe the work of people that do data visualization or, or work with data. So it's like we have uh, janitors, ninjas, rock stars, and unicorns. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and if you think about like all four of those, those are like very solitary, uh, very solitary creatures, <laughs> you know, like in general, those are yeah. like not collaborative things. It's like you go and you do your like amazing magic in like a box, kind of like the box I'm, I'm in right now. I'm mm. in a voiceover box. <laughs> and like you do it in the box and then you come out and you're like, look at my genius stuff that I just yeah. made. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or the wizard, the data wizard. The wizard, you know? yeah, that's another one, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And these things, yeah. they sound innocent, but I mean, in the end, they shape how we think. Or I mean, maybe they reflect how we think, but they can also shape how we think. Mm -hmm. Like if you're 16 and this is the thing you keep hearing, mm -hmm. you sort of tend to think this is how it works. At least totally. yeah, roughly, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think it's it's good to have an eye on and that. I and I have to say, I, I really like the trend in visualization of seeing 
couples of people doing things together and yeah, now the, that the I'm thinking about thing. it yeah, exactly. it's looked yeah. like it's been a women kind of thing right yeah, which is exactly. right yeah. right yeah. I mean think about the so we have Georgia and Stephanie fame. we yeah, have right? Nadia and Shirley yeah. right? I haven't seen yeah. a male couple yet right <laughs> maybe yeah. me, me well, and you say the stories right yeah I think you guys count yeah maybe we are the only male couple around yes I didn't anticipate that. Totally. <laughs> that's hilarious. But, no, I, you're very. I, I, that's very I, feminist of you. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think I think that's totally true. And yeah, in terms of like the um, collaboration as well, I think that's um, it's a really good point. And it, we also like what, what we've been starting to look into and talk about as well is like how do you involve multiple voices throughout the whole process? So not even just in the making of the visualization, but also in um, the, I mean, even in the selecting of the research question, um, even in the analysis, like there's actually, I've been trying to track a lot of um, projects. They mainly seem to be happening more in either kind of community-based art and the arts, or they're happening um, through public engagement processes with the city. But there's some really interesting projects that are going on where they involve members of the public um, or like sort of non-experts in analysis of the data. So it's sort of not the visualization necessarily, mm -hmm. but in sort of going through a public conversation and dialogue about like, what does this data mean? Um, and so I think those are also super interesting and exciting. And again, a way to like sort of undermine this idea of like if you work with data you're this you're the wizard or you're the unicorn or something like that although maybe that would be sad for people if they're not a unicorn anymore <laughs> <laughs> some can still be a unicorn right it's, yeah it just yeah. gets boring if it's just ninjas and <laughs> right <laughs> no. but like i would i would say i think this does have to do again back to like more like the inclusion issue like um I think it does have to do with, like, who we welcome into fields like this. Because if, if you're a person who likes to collaborate and, and likes to work with other people, but you're, like, trained into this model of, like, oh, you're a, you're a wizard now, <laughs> you know? Like, you're, you're this, like, um, data analyst wizard person that goes into the box and makes the, the thing. Um, that might just not be as an attractive as a, of a proposition for people as a, as a career choice. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the things like when working on a data related project, people might have an eye on? I mean, we, I think we discussed a lot, like already, like not to falling into the trap of wrong objectivity and maybe thinking more about where data comes from, how it might be biased already, your own biases. Are there more things, like maybe also smaller things, people might just want to have an eye on um, in terms of how they work? Yeah, let's see. Yeah, for you mean for like practitioners, like mm -hmm, who for are instance, doing yeah. So in your paper you have day. a few principles, for instance, like some of these mm -hmm. like maybe worth illustrating with a few uh, examples, examples of what types yeah. of thinking uh, could be helpful. Sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe one that I'll talk about, um, which I think is instructive, particularly because I think particularly for people who are making data visualizations now in a variety of different contexts, uh, one of the principles is consider context. Um, and what we mean by that is um, th like, so there's this complicated situation right now um, in which we have all these data sets that are being released into the world. We have the open data movement. We have APIs that one can contact um, and download data from them. Um, so we have a situation where 
there would appear to be this like environment of plenty in a sense for for data that one can gather. Um, but what happens a lot, um, and I'm sure you all are familiar with this, um, is that when you download these data sets from the web, like I in my classes, for example, we work with lots of open data from cities and states and countries and stuff. Um, it it the context has been completely stripped. So there's very mm -hmm. bad metadata, mm -hmm. and it's often very unclear, like, what, where does this data fit? So, like, why was this data collected? How does it fit within the organizational context in which it was it exists? Um, how does it unfold? Like, what are the—just even, like, what do the column names mean? Often there's no data dictionary or whatever. Um, and so that's one where, um, you know, it's like you're particularly ripe for making even just basic errors, like where you're literally just like wrong about what does this data represent. Sure. Um, yeah. And it's, again, where, like, a little bit of um, backtracking. So looking back, I actually have my students do things like write data biographies where they get, download data, but <laughs> mm -hmm. then they go I back in the process idea. and be like, yeah. Where does, this, where does this yeah, thing come this from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and just paint a little yeah. bit of a picture of it. Yeah, also Tariq Koka, he once from the World Bank, he just gave a talk once where he just traced one number, like this unemployment rate in Nigeria in 2015, like who, how did that come into that spreadsheet, right? And it's like yes. yeah. this chain of events and people yeah. like with notepads on markets and, you know, passing it on and faxing it somewhere else and and you suddenly get this respect for <laughs> all the messiness yeah. behind this simple number, Exactly. Right? And that's exactly it. It's like there's all this messiness. And it doesn't mean we can't use it, right? Yeah, sure. It doesn't yeah, yeah. preclude mm. us doing something with mm. it. But, like, it does mean just you're, you you be a little more careful that when you are doing things with it. So I think that's fascinating. And, like, it's like every sort of data point in a spreadsheet is that story. It's like somebody, like, scribbled a number on a form. And then somebody else, like, translated that number into some database. And then somebody else, like, used it to do this particular analysis in this way. So there's this, like history that um, is there that's not always immediately apparent. Um, and so that's that's what this like consider context thing means is like how do we sort of um, understand that our current data environment, especially like sort of uh, downloading data from the web and stuff like that is really not ideal. Like there's a lot that is lacking both in terms of like accessibility and then and context and metadata. And so how do we kind of trace that back and understand before we like jump in and just kind of move into the future and make some nice chart or graph, how do we understand sort of like where that comes from? Um, and so I actually have my students do interviews with people and um, and things like this. Um, and so that that's also just a way, I think, just to do better data visualization and just not to make um, really bad mistakes. And so there, and there are cases of where journalists have made um, sort of embarrassing mistakes because they think the data is one thing, mm -hmm. but then actually it's some, it's some wholly other thing that they're, they're representing. Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. such an important point, and uh, I think it's also related to the problem of of uncertainty that I think you do you do talk about, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, as you said, I think w one thing that I I've been thinking a lot lately, and I've been realizing through my work over the years is that we as a community tend to think of visualization as the art of creating a graphical format out of something, right? right. And the quality of this something, it's 100% dependent on how good the graphics <laughs> is, right? Yeah. But it, it, 
I mean, it's ex <laughs> it's definitely not the the, the case. You that can't separate it from you from can't what separate before. it right. from the data, right? In a in a myriad right. of ways that I don't have time to cover here. But you gave <laughs> a, <laughs> yeah. right. You you gave a really yeah. good examples here. If if the actual information that have been collected is not good enough, or you are not careful enough, if you don't understand it enough, what you are communicating is garbage. And whatever the graphical mm -hmm. format you're using doesn't matter at all, right? Exactly. At all, zero. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And conversely, totally if your irrelevant. data yeah. is is really well like yeah. crafted and collected and super good, a bar chart is fine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Then go for the bar chart or even that's a pie chart. Side. Let's be crazy. <laughs> yeah. But don't tell anyone. Yeah. Don't tell anyone. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, yeah, totally. And actually, another good example of this is one that my my students did a story about. Um, and this is one that I think kind of directly relates to some of these feminist concerns is, um, and again, why the considering context is very important and this idea that the data doesn't speak for itself. So just because you get a spreadsheet doesn't mean it's true, right? Um, and so they, they did this project on uh, sexual assault on college campuses. Um, and they collected all the data and they were looking just at Massachusetts. Um, and then they found this very weird thing where, like, the schools that had um, the least amount of um, sexual assault cases were actually the places that had the least supportive environment for survivors to come forward. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is a very interesting so thing. They so they looked delved... good, but in fact, they were the worst. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And so, That's and then the, the ones yeah. that looked the worst, so they had high numbers. And so on paper, like if you were just like, oh, the data is going to speak for itself, you would have said something like, oh, Williams College is doing really bad. And they have all of these cases right, of sexual right. assault. And that would have been like, if you're just like whipping it up, that, that would have been your bar chart or whatever. Um, And but when in fact when they like did interviews and they talked to people and they learned more about the data and how it's reported, so it's reported through a, it's a national database. It's called the Clery Report, um, and the institutions self-report. So there's many incentives uh, for institutions to. You know, no institution wants to look like it has high levels of sexual assault. Um, and then, of course, with actual survivors, there's, like, strong incentives not to come forward, especially in a hostile environment sure. where they wouldn't be sure. supported. Yeah. And so, like, that was their ultimate conclusion is that actually the data was the inverse of the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and the places that look the worst actually have this very supportive environment. They yeah. have staff time and resources devoted to the issue. They have support groups. And so, like, this is a very interesting finding and where, like, again, like, if you don't understand the context, Context, you're both going to get it wrong, but also there are some sort of, um, there are like gender and identity issues that go on here as well, because often the voices that are the most silenced are those voices of, say, women, marginalized groups, minorities, and others who are not necessarily comfortable coming forward in a particular kind of um, climate, right? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. So in any case, and that's in like a... a male-dominated environment, maybe people don't even notice because they are not uh, subject to this Problems. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that sort of closes the loop again. And yeah. here we are. <laughs> Back at yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, We need to wrap up soon, but I'd like to close also with some of your applied work because I think the theory is one thing, but, but you also have a lot of really interesting projects where you try <laughs> to, I, I would say you try to break a bit also the standards of how we communicate data, probably mm -hmm. maybe from uh, yep. understanding that, you know, a certain... Um, irritation can be good at understanding that something else is going on, maybe. So you have a few really cool yeah, non-standard data visualization projects. One I really liked is a walking data visualization uh, yeah. in Boston. Can you tell us a bit about this one? 
Sure. Yeah, yeah. So this is called uh, Boston Coastline Future Past. And a quick plug, if you're in the Boston area, it's on exhibit right now at the oh, MIT fantastic. Museum. Yeah, yeah and a, yeah. a show called Big Bang Data. Um, but yeah, so my my artist friend, Andy Sutton, and I, we did a collaborative piece where we um, we noticed, and we, ha- we now have a map, actually, that we're going to publish, but that the coastline of Boston in 1788, basically before it was all filled in, it's a very, like, human-made landscape, um, the, the coastline from 1788 is very, very similar to the coastline projected for 2100. Um, and so there's this alignment, and um, it's scary, actually, because the sea level rise is predicted to be so high in Boston, both due to climate change and to um, some erosion as well. Um that we thought, well, this is a really interesting opportunity to, like, talk about this, the fact that we're, like, returning, like, when we go into the future, we're returning to this, like, past view of what Boston was like. And so we um, basically led a tour. So we we walked part of the future and the past coastline at a place where they overlap with each other. And we had a little, um, what we called micro lectures along the way. So we mm-hmm. had, uh, like, the... Um, head of the environment for the city of Boston spoke about uh, landscape design and um, zoning codes and how we need to adjust zoning codes to to do uh, deal with climate change. Um, we had a woman from uh, the Boston Harbor Association who's done some of the most forefront um, modeling and data collection on the sea level rise. So she spoke about that process. And then we had a media scholar talk about um, coastlines sort of in the cultural imagination as well. Um, and then we ended by all stenciling messages on the Boston Common in this uh, sort of participatory art project. So mm-hmm. our goal was like to bring the the data to the level of the body. So again, right, this kind right. of emphasis mm-hmm. on embodiment and situating it in the body and having people feel like we're walking this line where you, literally there's nowhere where you can see the river or the ocean or anything like that and feel like, oh, this is going to be underwater. Like this is where the waterline will be in the future. And mm-hmm. there's something very visceral about that when, as opposed to when you just kind of see it in that top-down view where you see it in the situated view. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that was our walking data visualization. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think that's great, like how these thoughts can also like end up in really intriguing, intriguing projects, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and uh, I think we would like to end with one that can actually be played on the podcast as well. Uh, so we always love cool. data sonifications, of course. And yes. We have also been working on a, on a playful yeah. data sonification project. Can you tell us a bit about this? That we will hear in a minute also. Yeah. Yes. This is like my favorite project that is never, I don't know when I'm going to completely finish this, but um, it's called the Babbling Brook. And um, so the form of it that it takes is it's a large plastic flower. It's a very clearly fake flower. It's red. (laughs) And you um, stick it in a body of water, like a creek or a river or something like this. Um, It has a number of sensors on the bottom of it, so it can sense a variety of water quality parameters, um, such as like uh, turbidity and conductivity and temperature and things like this. And then it actually senses those, and then in real time, it makes uh, really bad jokes about the water quality. (laughs) So it's like a stand-up comedian flower that then talks in a robot voice, and then it laughs at its own, like, really terrible jokes. (laughs) So I have this idea, like, one of the things I want to do in the future is, like, I have this idea that I want to make environmental data comedy, because environmental Uh data is so terribly boring, and, you know, it's usually so depressing. And so, like... 
I want to have like kids write some stand-up joke material for the flower. <laughs> like, so it's like, how do we make some jokes about this thing that's like, I mean, serious, but it's like, exactly. we can't have so much doom and gloom yeah. about this. Stuff, yeah. you know, so. <laughs> it's like the last desperate measure is like a talking flower that makes exactly. jokes about the water quality. Right? Exactly. So, yeah. We can go down in flames of talking robots. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's so, wonderful. So yeah, so, just yeah. to close this podcast, we will, you will hear a few of the, the best uh, worst jokes from a, from a talking <laughs> from flower. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so thanks so much for joining us. This was amazing. I also, dear listeners, uh, make sure to read the paper and the, the blog post we link. I think there's yeah much we were not able to touch on in this short conversation and there's lots of interesting stuff to discover. And also look at uh, Catherine's website at kanarinka.com. Correct. Very good. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. No, it's yeah. a huge pleasure. It's great. Yeah, Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good morning, friends. I'm 5.25 inches deep and my temperature is 48 degrees Fahrenheit. Feeling groovy. Da -da 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 -da. Feeling groovy. Knock, knock. Who's there? Water. Water who? What are you doing in my creek? <laughs> I am rolling on the floor, laughing out loud. At Canarinka, here's a good one. What do snowmen eat for lunch? Icebergers. <laughs> rolling on the floor, laughing out loud. At Annette, what are you doing right now? I'm going with the flow. <laughs> Get it? I'm a creek. If you are getting bored, you should check out my website at www.thebabblingbrook.com. <laughs>